Let's now turn once again to God's Word, Daniel chapter 3, and we'll read the verses 19 to 30, the rest of the chapter. Once again, this is the Word of the Lord. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may God bless that reading, and as well, the proclamation of his word this afternoon. Following the sermon in response to it, we'll sing from Psalm 68, once again, stanzas 8 and 12. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, after Daniel successfully revealed and interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the king's immediate response says a whole lot about the spiritual impact that these events had on him. And when it comes right down to it, that spiritual impact was not great. And he says some of the right things. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And it sounds like a confession of faith. Almost. But not quite. First of all, there's that word your at the beginning of the sentence. Nebuchadnezzar might pay lip service to the Lord, Daniel's God, the God of heaven, but he still calls him your God and not my God or the one true God. He may be the God of gods for the moment in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, but it's pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar was far from being converted to the true faith. And you can also see it in the other aspects of Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. He fell on his face and he paid homage, but he paid homage not to the Lord, 
but to Daniel. He made a sacrifice and he offered up incense, but he offered that incense not to the Lord, he offered it to Daniel. And then he gave high honors and gifts, not to the Lord, but to Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar was impressed, but being impressed doesn't mean being converted. When we read the story of Daniel 3, we can see just how little Nebuchadnezzar had actually been changed. In these stories, Nebuchadnezzar reminds us really of the Pharaoh prior to the Exodus. He was momentarily impressed and frightened and awestruck by the majesty of God. But that immediate emotional response doesn't bear any fruit. His heart is not changed. And so here in chapter 3, we encounter Nebuchadnezzar doing his utmost to fight against the will of the Lord. The Lord had given him a sure vision of the future, a vision that was proven to be of divine origin because Daniel revealed the dream and then interpreted it. And that vision revealed a succession of empires. His Babylonian empire would be the greatest, but it would be just as temporary as all the rest. And then it would be defeated and by an inferior empire, as we've heard in previous weeks. And finally, that fifth empire, the kingdom of God himself, would crush all the rest and scatter them like chaff. But that vision of the future, and that vision was by by no means unclear or uncertain, it had even been miraculously confirmed, didn't lead Nebuchadnezzar to submit and to humble himself before the Lord. No, instead, it led him to harden his heart even more to deny the will of the Lord, and then to solidify his own rebellion against God, against the true king. So his dream had shown him a great image of a man. And it seemed like that image inspired him to create an image of his own. In his dream, he and his empire had been represented by the head of gold, and the image became less and less glorious the further down on the body that you went. But Nebuchadnezzar refused to accept the reality of the situation. He refused to accept that his kingdom would be temporary, and that he was anything less than the king who would live forever, as the Chaldeans called him. And so he doesn't construct an image that reflects the reality of God's revelation, the God-ordained, God-revealed reality. Instead, he deliberately defies God's revelation. He shakes his fist at God. He stands up and says, you may think that you're going to direct history your way, but I'll show you because I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I am the king of kings. I am the ruler of men and beasts and birds of the air of the world. My will 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 not be thwarted. Now, we know that Nebuchadnezzar was a megalomaniac. He was a man who had read his own press clippings, we could say. He didn't need anyone to convince him of his own greatness. But in reality, what we need to understand is that he is no different from any human being apart from Christ, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we could all rightly say there 
but for the grace of God, go I. What we see in Nebuchadnezzar is a kind of madness, but it's not an uncommon kind of madness. And so in the face of such madness, which we see all around us, the first thing we need to do is to get down on our knees and thank God for having delivered us from these delusions ourselves. Our nature is to rebel against God. Our nature is to put ourselves on the throne. Our nature is to make ourselves the equivalent of this 180-foot-tall golden statue and to demand that all others worship before it. And we know that the average person doesn't get to the place where Nebuchadnezzar got. But that's because the average person simply doesn't have as much power as Nebuchadnezzar had. And so we need to remember this thing, that our, our natural position, where we are at now in Christ, is different. Remembering that this, that the state of Nebuchadnezzar, is our own natural state. Remembering that we can see through the foolishness of the self-made gods of this world only because we are united to Christ by true faith and because Christ laid down his life for us, knowing this should humble us. It should overwhelm us, really, with God's grace, with the love that he has shown to us. There, but for the grace of God, go we. And it should lead us to worship. And it should lead us to true worship, worship of the creator and not of the created thing, whether that created thing is ourselves or anything else. And it must also lead us to stand firm in the faith, trusting in the God who rescued us, refusing to go, go along with the world in order to get along, bearing witness, first of all, to our allegiance, which is to the God who deserves it, and not to some pretender who imagines that he has godlike powers and godlike authority. Now, the, people, the peoples under King Nebuchadnezzar's authority apparently didn't see the need or even the point of disregarding his command to worship this giant idol. Nebuchadnezzar sent out heralds, messengers, who traveled throughout the empire proclaiming the false gospel of the false god of, Nebuch of King Nebuchadnezzar, proclaiming this message to all the peoples, nations, and languages to fall down and worship the king's golden image at the appointed time, accompanied by all of the trappings of false worship. Because after all, for these people, the choice was clear. Either worship the image or die. The furnace was stoked up. It was ready to receive its victims. Play your part. Go along with it. Even if you know that it's all a charade, even if you really don't believe in this false god, and you'll survive. But stand up and proclaim, this is a lie. Your God is nothing. I will not worship. And you would face the wrath of the king and you would lose your life. So would it be worth it, really? Now, apparently for almost everyone, including the Jews who had been exiled to Babylon, the price of not worshiping the golden image was too high for them. And so they went along with it. And they may have justified it. They may have said, I only have to do this one outward act, but it really has nothing to do with my heart. 
I'll bow down before this great idol, but really it's not going to mean anything. That's not what Daniel's three friends thought. The Chaldean colleagues of these three young men were obviously not overly enamored with them. They had already distinguished themselves, stood out from the crowd, distinguished themselves from the herd. Because first of all, they had maintained their purity and their distinct existence. They refused to conform. And secondly, because they had proven themselves to be ten times better than all of the other magicians and enchanters in the Babylonian Empire. And so when they paid no attention to the king's decree, when they refused to bow down before King Nebuchadnezzar's God, when they refused to worship the golden image that he set up, they did not hesitate, these Chaldeans, to inform the king. And when they were confronted with the might of the empire and the threats of the man who had put himself in God's place, this man who could not imagine that there was a God who could possibly deliver them out of his hands, these young men did not waver in the slightest. When the Chaldeans spoke to the king, they used that same form of respect that they had used when they had spoken to him about his dream. They said, O king, live forever. But take a look at what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego said. They felt no need to use this traditional phrase. Instead, they addressed the king as the man he was, not as a divine being, not as someone who existed on a higher plane than they did, but as a man. O Nebuchadnezzar, they say. And what they say to him after that was meant to destroy whatever delusions of grandeur he was still living with. Simply put, they said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Because everything that King Nebuchadnezzar was declaring about himself with this grand image was a delusion. It was a declaration that had absolutely no basis in reality. Nebuchadnezzar imagined that he had all the authority in the world. He imagined that he could shape the world. He could form it in his own image. He imagined that he could move the people around his empire like so many pieces on a chessboard. He imagined that by his own might, he could thwart the plans of Daniel's God of heaven. Now, he was wrong, and with that that one sentence, these three young men revealed exactly how wrong he was. In effect, what they told him was this, you may have the power to kill us if we don't bow down to your idol. But the fact is, we don't answer to you. We answer to the one true God. And we will face whatever punishment you have ordained for people who, dis- who disobey your decree because we're simply not going to obey it. You can throw us into the fiery furnace if you want, but we trust in our God. We know that the power and the dominion and the authority and the kingdom belong to Him. And we know that He is perfectly capable of delivering us from death if that be His will. But even if He doesn't, even if we die in this fiery furnace, we are still not going to do what you ask. You may be the king, you may have received your 
position from God. But King Nebuchadnezzar, your authority only goes so far. There is an authority far greater than you. Now all of this reminds us of what the Apostle Peter would say. Around 600 years later, the high priest told him and and the other disciples to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. And it reminds us also of what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. And he said, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now these young men, they feared the one true God. And not this unstable, deluded, false god of Babylon. And so live or die, they would not deny him. And we see Nebuchadnezzar responding. Responding as he often did, apparently, by flying into a rage. He ordered the furnace to be superheated, had the three young men men bound and, and thrown in. And that furnace was so ridiculously hot that even the men, the mighty men of the king's army, who were acting as Nebuchadnezzar's executioners, even those men were killed. But to Nebuchadnezzar, it was just all in a day's work. Human lives meant nothing to him, especially not the lives of these impudent young men who refused to bow the knee, but really even even the lives of his own men, his own soldiers were not important to him. He was Nebuchadnezzar, and his will would be done. But then as we know, we know this story, something incredible happens. That overheated furnace should have turned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into piles of smoldering ash immediately. But that's not what happened. Nebuchadnezzar and his counselors are watching, apparently from a safe distance. But instead of giving Nebuchadnezzar the satisfaction of seeing the men who had challenged his greatness destroyed under his all-powerful will, Nebuchadnezzar saw an amazing sight. Not only were the three young men apparently unharmed completely, they were unbound and they were walking in the midst of the fire. There was also a fourth man in there with them. And his appearance was like a son of the gods. So the fire died down. Nebuchadnezzar recovers from his astonishment and he does something and and he can approach the furnace now. And apparently... This miraculous event reminded him of the God of the Jews. And so he addresses these young men as servants of the Most High God. And he calls them to come out. And these three young men come out and they're unharmed. But apparently this this fourth man is nowhere to be found. And we don't really know who that fourth person was. Whether it was the angel of the Lord. Whether we could say it was the pre-incarnate Christ the Son, the second person of the Trinity, physically present with these men, or whether it was simply an angel. But when it comes right down to it, that speculation might be interesting, but it's it's not entirely necessary. The fact is, regardless 
of who exactly we think it was. God himself was present with these men. As they boldly and as they fearlessly faced what appeared to be a certain death, he was there. He was with them. Not only did he not abandon his faithful children, he was present with them in a very special way. He was quite literally Emmanuel for them, God with us. And because God was with them, the fire had no power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. So there was obviously and clearly nothing natural about any of this. This was God's work. And so Nebuchadnezzar responds by blessing the God of these three young men. He's impressed by their faith. He's impressed by their their refusal to, to obey his command. He's impressed by their willingness to give up their own lives rather than serve and worship any other God other than their own God. Now, their witness, the way that they lived their life and the way that they lived the faith that they confessed, that witness was a powerful one. And that witness led Nebuchadnezzar to make a decree. And by now we can see that this was kind of a typical thing for Nebuchadnezzar because that decree involved tearing people limb from limb and burning down their houses. And once again, we know this was not a conversion. Nebuchadnezzar's heart was not changed. Nebuchadnezzar remained the same old violent despot with the same anger management problem. He had the same dictatorial tendencies as before. But even though the king wasn't converted, the faithful obedience of these young men, their refusal to obey a wicked decree of a wicked man, it led to their deliverance. And their deliverance would ultimately lead to the continued preservation of God's people in exile. And so once again, these young men were promoted And the faithful remnant of God's covenant people was preserved. And they would be protected even from those Chaldeans who resented everything about them. And so like Joseph in Egypt, they would be used by God for his own good purposes. And through faithful men like them, God would continue to crush the kingdoms of this world. He would continue to remind the deluded would-be gods of this world that their authority was limited. The dreams of autonomous men, men without God, men who imagine themselves to be self-sufficient and independent, those dreams would be crushed. The mighty emperors would would be revealed to have just been men after all. And so God's name would be praised and his enemies would be humbled. And all of this would be done by God, and it would be done through his faithful servants. The Lord Jesus told his disciples, he said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. 
So in other words, brothers and sisters, the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ was not meant to be an easy one. The servants would not escape the experience of their master. Now Jesus told his disciples that they should not be surprised if the world would hate them. And we shouldn't be surprised either, brothers and sisters, if the world hates us. If your goal is to be loved and respected, if your goal is to be a part of the elite of society, the cream of the crop of this society, if your goal is to have people say nothing but nice things about you, then you're in the wrong place and you're following the wrong master. But the thing is, the Lord Jesus did not just remind the disciples of the difficulties that they would face, the difficulties that they would experience bearing witness to the true king of the universe before the governors and the kings of this world. He also gave them this beautiful promise in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 20. He said, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, your Father speaking through you. Brothers and sisters, how many of you get anxious when opportunities arise to bear witness to King Jesus? We're not facing a fiery furnace. The devil is a subtle enemy. He knows what he's doing. In a secular society like ours, or we could say it's a, a different kind of a religious society. The persecution that the church faces is of a different kind. One author said this about secularism, which is what we live in, in the midst of. He said, secularism has prevailed throughout our society by means of the fiction that it is kind of a neutral, least common denominator. But in reality, secular liberalism is itself a religion or an anti-religion, a complete worldview and an agenda in direct and fierce competition with Christianity. That's the world that we live in. And so the false gods of our day are secular gods. They're the gods of this age. They're not giant golden statues. The fiery furnace has been replaced by something a lot more subtle, by accusations of intolerance and hatred, of not being loving, at least in the way that the world defines love, of being judgmental, of not being inclusive. So the punishments, what are they? The punishments are being ridiculed and marginalized, being excluded, being pushed off to the side, being viewed as irrelevant, being seen as backward, superstitious people who don't understand that the, the advances that the human race has made as we have arrived in the 21st century. And we know, we know from throughout history, the history of the church, and we know from our own personal experience that generally the fear that keeps us from proudly and unashamedly bearing witness to King Jesus, to our Savior and Lord, that fear is not fear of death, but it's the fear of man. But God walked in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Lord Jesus told his disciples, do not be anxious. 
Because I'm going to send my spirit to give you the words that you need to say. And he'll also give you the boldness with which you need to speak those words. And when he gave the the Great Commission, when he sent his disciples into the world to preach and to teach and to baptize, he made that beautiful promise. He said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, if we believe these words, if we know the Savior and we trust the Savior, then we can go forth and we can do exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. We can show that same confidence that they demonstrated. We can stand before governors and princes without any fear. And we must. We can be a faithful and a bold witness to our crucified and risen Savior, trusting in all, with all our heart that whether we live or die, He will be with us and we will have lived and died in service to Him. Brothers and sisters, we serve the King of the universe. And therefore, we do not have to fear the kings of this world Not one little bit. No matter how powerful they appear, no matter the weapons that they have at their disposal, because our King walks with us, even in the fiery furnace. Amen.